everyone. Welcome to the Women Wide for Wellness podcast presented by Holistic Icon. I'm your host, Dr. Nisha Shalom. You may be thinking, does the world need yet another podcast? As a physician in practice, I have been intrigued by the fact that despite our education, despite the abundance of information and advancements in a country like ours, women struggle for decades with troubling symptoms to seek help, or even when they seek help, suffer for years before they can get a resolution. It is my obsession to understand one, this culture. Number two, understand how we can create health and move away from this preoccupation of diagnosing and managing disease. Therefore, one of my passions is to teach both my patients and people who come in contact with us as it helps me empower myself and them with the knowledge that our health is probably the one asset we all can control. This control begins with knowing all that has been known about it. It is not simply about knowing a disease and considering the right medications, which has been presented today as our only option, as it certainly might be the only option if we choose to do nothing different. But to truly live fulfilling lives, we need to know how to tap into our innate nature to heal. When it comes to health, there is a finish line and there is a timeline to get to it. We help you get there with a different way of thinking. But this podcast has helped you or opened your eyes to a different path. Please take time to leave a positive review. And if you felt it fell short somehow, let us know how we can improve it. Let's get on to today's podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the 43rd episode of Women Wide for Wellness. I am Dr. Chalam, and in this episode, we are talking to Dr. Ernesto Gutierrez, who's an internist who fell upon anti-aging several decades ago when it was a very early field. Today, we all hear about stem cells and stem cell therapy. What is a stem cell? It's a cell that doesn't have any particular form, but can take on any form of any tissue that they find they have to repair. In other words, they go to those tissues that have inflammation and take on so it can become a cartilage, it can become the lung tissue, whatever it needs to repair, it can take on its form. So that's very interesting. However, I learned a few very important nuggets. In the United States, we use stem cells to actually repair joints. However, you need to understand for the stem cells to truly work, you need to have active inflammation. If you have a joint that's burnt up, a place that's been scarred, stem cells probably will not work there. So it's very important before you invest your money on a treatment to understand when it's actually going to work. The second thing that I learned is stem cells can be given not simply into an or a tissue or a joint but can be given what is called parenterally. What is parenterally? That means it can be given intravenously, which allows the stem cells to go find the area of inflammation and repair it. So it's noted that in such situations, the lungs will get a lot of the stem cells, which is interesting because if you have active lung disease like COPD or asthma, where there is still a lot of active inflammation, stem cells could be a potential long-term solution. Now, I'm not really sure if it'll work for something like uh, primary pulmonary fibrosis, which or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is a scarring of the lung tissue because it usually does not work when there is scars, but works when there is inflammation. So, so many beautiful nuggets in this podcast. And if you are wanting to know a little more about stem cell, this is the podcast to listen to. So without any further delay, let's go on and listen to this conversation with Dr. E, the stem cell guy. 
Hi everyone, Dr. Chalam from Holistic and Integrative Center of Nova, and we have an exciting topic today, and I think it is probably the new, um, probably a, a therapy that's increasingly being used, and it's good to always know when to use it and when not to, so I have um, actually invited for this our stem cell guy. Dr. Ernesto, I'm going to call him Dr. E, and I know you told me how to pronounce your last name, so I'm going to ask you to pronounce it, Dr. E, again. Yeah, so the name is Ernesto Gutierrez. Gutierrez. It's, it's really a very, um, uh, what can I say, it actually sounds very good. It sounds really nice. But we will yeah, go but you, with that. But you need to roll your R's, which is which is kind of hard for most people, so yeah. that's, that's why I got the Dr. E from it. Dr. E, awesome. Dr. So it, let's, um, since I want our audience to know where exactly you practice and your background, would you just go ahead and let us know where you actually started and how you got yourself to be the stem cell guy? Sure. So uh, I went to medical school in uh, Mexico City, where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And uh, after I graduated, I did some additional studies in, uh, in age management and uh, in regenerative medicine. So anti-aging, age management, and and that sort of started me on the path of of realizing that there's a lot more when when we think about anti-aging, most people think about lines and wrinkles, right? Uh, but in reality, there's there's so much more on an on an inner uh, all the inner workings and what starts happening at a at a cellular level uh, when we age, and that's what got me into regenerative medicine. Um, so many years ago now, so since 2011, late okay. no 2012, yeah. uh, early 2012, I, I um, you know I trained for for age management, and that that got me started on the path, and I've been uh, growing almost together with the industry because although uh, stem cells have been performed for for a long time, they've only really started becoming popular and um, and available for for a lot of people uh, very recently. Correct. So when you say anti-aging medicine, I'm sure the, the face of anti-aging medicine has changed in this last decade. It's almost going to be a decade since you've gotten into it. What do you see as how has, this, has it evolved? And what is, your, from an anti-aging physician standpoint, what is your take on what is truly anti-aging? Well, so in reality, anti-aging has has evolved as a concept uh, quite a bit because uh, everyone just grabs it and uses it for whatever they want, right? And and most most people just think of it like I said at the beginning uh, about lines and wrinkles. So if you're starting to look old, uh, then you do some anti-aging treatments. That's why we have anti-aging creams and anti-aging uh, spas and anti-aging everything, right? But in reality, like I said, it's more about reversing or preventing really the, the, the signs of aging that happen on, on a cellular level uh, in our body. And, and obviously we've, we've learned a lot from that and a lot of new different branches have, have popped up. And, um, and really what I, what I like about it is being able to, to look at these things and, and understand that it's really the epitome of, of preventative medicine really, because anti-aging we, we age from the moment we're born yes so anti-aging really is is about giving our body 
what it needs to to prevent wear and tear and and to avoid wear and tear. So it is it is eating well, it is sleeping, it is maintaining our energy, exercise, lifestyle, nutrition, uh, avoiding toxins, all of these different things. That is anti aging. Anti aging is not just getting your face full of Botox and uh, and dermal right. fillers. Uh, there's a place for that, but that's more cosmetic medicine. When 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 in reality, anti aging is just basically taking good care of your body. So basically, I think the aging process, if I remember right, from biochemistry is a lot of DNA damage that happens. And this early cellular death, that means your cells actually die before their time. And so there's a lesser amount of function and the wear and tear happens to all of us. So when you're doing anti-aging, you're trying to help the body withstand the wear and tear and repair much faster. Could that be a way we could look at it or... Well, first of all, what you're trying to avoid is as much wear and tear. That's the number one step. You you want so to make sure that protecting the body from wear and tear to some degree. Exactly. So you're avoiding you're avoiding environmental toxins. You're avoiding nutritional toxins. A lot of the times we don't realize that what we're eating. It's not just about. I mean, obviously, the number one goal is about nourishment when when we eat. But also, right. when we don't eat the right things, it's not about. Well, we 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 didn't get the nourishment for that one meal. It is, we actually created damage. And that's what, what a lot of people are failing to really understand is if you eat a bad quality uh, Franken food that we have available and those you know highly processed and, and, and sugar laden uh, crap really, uh, what's happening is that it's, it's hurting your body. It's, it's almost like eating rocks. You would never do that uh, because of what's gonna happen to your digestive system. But it's the, the exact same thing. Uh, the only difference is that these other frankenfoods come in a, in a, in a package. They, they're packaged and, and they're presented as food, but in reality, they create damage. So really, when we talk about anti-aging, the number one step is to avoid as much wear and tear as possible. Obviously, you're not able to avoid everything. You're not gonna live in a bubble. Um, yeah. But but it is avoiding it as, as, as much as possible. And then, obviously, giving your body the necessary tools mm -hmm. it needs in order to repair that wear and tear. Yeah, got it. Okay, so let's say I mean, the aging process is inevitable, like we just discussed, from birth till death, you are aging, and there is a lot of a cell death that naturally happens and that's why we you know your hair falls your uh, skin wrinkles your height goes down i mean these are all degenerative changes some people go at it at a faster rate others they have better genes and they are able to repair and do a better job of living well but in terms of um the particular thing that you do which is stem cells it started off with a lot of controversy because we were talking about stem cells. First of all, for people who are completely clueless, what is a stem cell? Well, the stem cells, the stem cells are the original cells that that can grow and specialize. There's there's two characteristics, two main characteristics that a stem, that a cell has to have in order for it to be considered. Uh, a stem cell, and, and this this is on, on, on a broad spectrum. I'm not going to go into the specific surface right. markers and, and things like that, but on a broad spectrum, they have two very important characteristics. One is that they can self-replicate and renew. So from one cell, we get two and four and eight and 16 and 32 and so on and so forth, right? Uh, and, and then the other one, there's a lot of cells in our bodies that can do that, but they're not stem cells because they're lacking the second um, the second a very important uh, condition that they must meet. And it is that they can they can differentiate or specialize. Differentiate is just the fancy word that we use to to 
signifier to mean that a cell is becoming specialized in one specific area. So from, from one original cell, what starts happening is that they start branching out. That's why they're called stem cells because they, it's kind of like the stem. And then from there, all the different tissues start branching out. And the way I always explain this to, to my medical students or even to parents of children who are seeking treatment uh, for them to understand is when we're going to school and when we're children and we go to elementary school, every single child goes to the same class, right? And they, they learn the exact same things and they go to the same to the same classes all the time. But as they start growing older and maybe they get to high school and then they go to they, they choose a different uh, concentration based on their interests and they might go towards biology and some others might go to social studies and then they go to college and they, they start branching out further apart and kids who start in the exact same class end up being a tax attorney and a neurosurgeon which couldn't be further apart but they all started from the same point same thing happens with our cells so we have these common um, this common stem cell and from there we start branching out and, and we can create bone and, and some others go to muscle and some others go to blood cells and the blood cells can further specialize into white blood cells and red blood cells and the white blood cells even further specialize into neutrophils and lymphocytes and all these different cell populations and, and that's really what happens uh, with, with all the stem cells. That's, that's, those are the two characteristics that they must have uh, in order for them to be considered stem cells. To just put it into a simpler form for people, it, it has to be able to multiply and it has to be able to become a specialized organ. Where exactly, we, exactly. These are the two things. So you can just get a cell that just multiplies but cannot, it's not versatile enough to get into a specialized... That's right. So, so for instance, our hepatocytes, the cells in our liver, they have, they have a, an uncanny ability to repair themselves and regenerate and, yeah, and yeah, multiply. Yeah. Uh, but they cannot further specialize. They cannot suddenly become a different kind of cell. So that's why they're not stem cells. Now, there are different types of stem cells because I remember when stem cells first got spoken of, it was always the embryonic and there were always, you know, um, the pro-life and uh, movement around it. But that's not what we talk about when we're talking about the stem cells. Now, there's still embryonic stem cells, but what are, where do you get stem cells from and um, how did they figure, like, these are the cells that actually will be, have the capacity to differentiate? Yeah, so at that point, you've got two, two types of cells, really, once again. And you've got the embryonic, which are called also totipotent, which means that from the, that one cell, they can, you, can, you can create a whole new human being. They can, they can become every other tissue. They can multiply, they can regenerate, they can become every other tissue. Um, and they can also create all the organs that go outside of the embryonic sac, so the placenta and all those things. Right. Then as those same cells start maturing, they become adult stem cells. So this is, this is actually quite interesting or quite important to, to differentiate because even though most of the birth tissues right now that you're seeing as stem cells in the U.S., so amniotic fluid and Wharton's jelly and cord blood and cord and umbilical cord itself, they come from newborn babies. They are considered adult stem cells because biologically, on a cellular level, they're no longer embryonic. So you've got embryonic and then they're adult stem cells, which means that they can no longer give rise to every single tissue in the body. They've already started down that, uh, that differentiation path. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's uh, one type of stem cell. What are the other types of stem cells that people actually can encounter? What do you mean different types like, of stem cells? Uh, do you have like from the bone marrow and... Oh, yeah. So, so, okay. So, so then again, those are different sources. Right. You've, got, you've got allogeneic. Allogeneic cells, they come from a donor. 
the most common source of, of allogeneic cells are cord blood, cord tissue, amniotic, so the different birth tissues, right? And, and you can use them in different people. So, okay. so from one donor and you can use it in, in, in different persons. And then you have the autologous, which is your own stem cells. These are by far the safest at, at the moment. Uh, they're not the easiest to, to get uh, for several reasons, and, and, and we can discuss those, but they're, they are the safest to, to treat with because you cannot reject your own cells, oh, no. right? Yeah. So these ones, we're currently, we're constantly discovering new sources of stem cells in our body. Most commonly, you're going to be talking about fat. So fat tissue has a lot of stem cells. You're going to be talking about bone marrow. Bone marrow has a lot of stem cells and super high quality stem cells. Because one of the things that people don't really realize about the bone marrow is that the bone marrow produces all of our blood, right? And yes. it also produces a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of stem cells. Now, the thing is, the cells that are produced inside the bone marrow of the cells, they can go out. But very few things, almost nothing can come in. So even with patients who have certain, certain, for instance, patients with Lyme disease and, and, and chronic infections and things like that, they worry about, well, if I use my own cells, they're also going to be affected by this. Well, no, because we're getting them from the bone marrow. So, so mm -hmm. those, are, those are good cells. Uh, but you can also get stem cells from peripheral blood. Uh, give you the if you do a pharesis and and you draw out enough blood, you can get a certain amount of stem cells, not a lot, but you can get a certain amount of stem cells there. You can get stem cells from from the pulp of teeth if when when they're when they're freshly extracted. Um, there's there's a few stem cells. There are very few, um, but it, you know there are stem cells there, and we're constantly finding new sources of of, of stem cells. So the allogenic, do they still use it? And is there a specific indication for allogenic? Yeah, so uh, allogeneic cells are, are used widely. As a matter of fact, most of the treatments that you're currently seeing in the U.S. right now are being performed with uh, allogeneic cells. So these are from cord blood. Uh, most of the time, cord blood. Some products do contain amniotic fluid, um, and, and, and they are being employed for, for different indications. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so um, the ones like Parkinson's, when you talk about Parkinson's, are yeah. you talking about the allogenic at that time, or are you not talking about the autologous? Well, there's there's a there's a funny there. I don't want to say funny, uh, but what really happens here is that most of the time, and, and, and that's a big problem with the industry, and and we can go deeper into that if you want. But one of the one of the issues here is that we're seeing a lot of a lot of doctors uh, or health professionals who are not specialists in one specific area. Right who suddenly decide to start using stem cells and because they have access to stem cells, they decide to start treating anything and everything. Yeah. Um, ideally, you really, you really want to be very careful when, when, when you're treating certain conditions. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about Parkinson's, uh, not only do you have to do IV infusions, but yes. it is recommended to also go directly into the central nervous system. Most of the protocols uh, do include that through a, a lumbar puncture. So you go to lumbar puncture and you, you deposit a few stem cells into cerebral spinal fluid. And, and what happens with the cerebral spinal fluid is that it really flows and, and invades the entire uh, brain, the brainstem, right. yeah. and every other organ inside inside the um, you know in, in, inside the central nervous system. So you don't necessarily need to go directly into the skull. Uh -huh. uh, you can just deposit it there, and it'll flow and it'll it'll bathe those areas. But obviously, in the U.S., most doctors don't have the ability to do that. Mm. Um, second, most of the time, you're going to see very positive, very good results with autologous cells. Mm. And when you want to use allogeneic cells, so from cord blood, you want to use 
expanded cells. Now, expanded cells are when you get, let's say you get cord blood and you separate the cells, the stem cells from everything else that comes in the cord blood because it's not just stem cells, right? right. So you separate those and you get a, a certain amount of cells. You ideally also want to grow them because remember, one of the advantages of the stem cells, one of their qualities is that they can replicate. So if you put them in an incubator with the right growth medium, they're going to grow and they're going to expand their numbers. The problem is that you cannot currently do that in the U.S. That, that completely takes them out of what, what the FDA calls uh, minimal manipulation because once mm -hmm. you start manipulating it, then they fall into a completely different category, which most of the time they already do, but they're kind of in a, in a gray area right now. Um, and, and that's part of the problem. Now, the second problem is that if you want to use some of these products to treat these conditions in the U.S., and you say, you know what, I'm still going to try it. Um, we're going to use some of these products. We're going to go IV because you cannot grow and expand and, and, and properly filter. You're also having a lot of other components that are coming with them. So, so you're opening the door to, to additional conditions. You, most of the time, you will want to stick to, uh, to, to autologous. Like I said, they're, they're safer. From your own cells. Yeah, from your own cells. Um, there are, obviously, you're going to see people that, that completely disagree with that, and they say that, oh, no, of course not. In, in court blood yeah, is the best in umbilical cord. And, and then when you look deeper, it real, you realize that these people only have access to those kind of cells or, or they manufacture them. So it kind of makes sense. The lab that I, that I used to run in Cancun, we had both sources. So we have a bank of allogeneic cells that we can grow and expand to treat specific conditions, such as autoimmune disorders. They, they respond really well to those. And we also have the ability to harvest and, and, and bank and expand autologous. So we really have seen some conditions that, that do better with, with autologous, which is most of them, and some conditions that do better with allogeneic, which most of the time is autoimmune disorders. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand this a little better because I don't know anything about stem cells. So when you inject stem cells, whether it be allogenic from a cord blood or embryonic origin or autologous, which is from your own cell, these cells actually will find the place that they have to go and repair yeah, so so stem cells stem cells recognize you know when when we have an injured tissue, this injured tissue starts releasing certain cytokines, starts expressing certain uh, surface yeah. markers, right? So the stem cells recognize these things, and 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 they will go to the specific injury site. Okay. Once they go to the specific injury site, they will they will engraft there, or they will they will go there, and they will. Here's the here's the thing that a lot of people get confused about. They think that these stem cells will go there, and let's say we have a broken bone, mm -hmm. and these stem cells will go there and 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 start differentiating, becoming that bone and repairing it. But that's not at all what they do. When you're utilizing exogenous stem cells, even and that actually even in applies when you're using your own stem cells. When you apply them exogenously, these cells are going to go to the, infect, to the affected side, affected, not infected, to the affected side, and they will start releasing these pro and anti-inflammatory cytokines. They will start recruiting a lot of different cells to come and repair, and they will also recruit and promote the release of new endogenous stem cells. This is, this is one of the reasons why we see some people who respond really, really well to stem cell therapy and some people who don't respond really well to stem cell therapy. And, and a lot of the times doctors start scratching their heads because they say, well, we use the exact same thing. Why did, why did it work here and why didn't it work here? Well, it is because the stem cells themselves don't go and repair. The stem cells go there. And, and I tell them, imagine 
these are kind of like the foremans at a construction site. They will go there and they will start grabbing and getting people all together. But if you don't have people to come in and actually do the rebuild, then nothing's going to happen. And, and, and that's, that's how the stem cells work. When we're utilizing them externally, they will go, they will recruit your own cells. That's why it's so important to, to analyze your patient even before you get the treatment and not just hurry to get them sitting there and, and inject them. It's, it's very important to make sure that they're at a very good place before the treatment so that they can leverage and get the best result from it. So I'm trying to understand that a little better. So in other words, if there is dead scar tissue, no activity for repair, injecting stem cells into that area is not necessarily going to help. Uh, what do you mean? Uh, what do you mean uh, scar tissue? When you, when you say like something has had an injury and it's actually repaired, done with, there's no chronic underlying inflammation, nothing to stimulate growth, nothing to stimulate repair, it's done. If you put stem cells in there it's not going to actually be no, because they, they won't recognize they won't recognize an inflammatory response now most of the time when we when you do it like an iv treatment and most people do this for anti-aging purposes right, right? And you right. go in and you get an iv treatment with stem cells uh, the stem cells will find something to repair i mean just just from yeah, being out right. there there's and, always you know, some sun, even in our lungs now another important thing most of the stem cells that we inject iv are going to end up in the lungs so, so that's, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, it's a good thing because our lungs are, are incredibly exposed to, to the environment that we're at because yeah. how many times, how, how much are we breathing every day? And, and it's coming in and it's affecting our lungs, right? So, so we're triggering that repair. But in the other side is all the other organs, if we're injecting, let's say, 100 million stem cells, the rest of the organs are going to have to fight for about 10 or 15 million while the, while the lungs are going to keep 85 to 90%. Wow. They're just, just going to get stuck there. So basically, it can be a great uh, option for COPDers. It's a phenomenal option for COPDers. Right? I mean, some of the some of the best some of the best results that I've seen with stem cell treatments in in all, in all these years have come from patients with COPD. I mean, we've seen we've seen patients coming in with their with their oxygen uh, with their little machines, and and they cannot even take a shower on their own without without the oxygen. And 36 hours later, they're able to walk a couple of steps. They don't necessarily need it. We've seen the 35% improvement in respiratory function test on this spirometry in in 36 hours after the infusion. Because when you get so many stem cells in there, you're definitely going to trigger a lot of repair. Yeah. So basically, somebody who has very advanced COPD has quit cigarettes yeah. and is really trying to uh, avoid, you know, trying to carry that oxygen tank everywhere. Stem cells is a great option for them. Just it get is, that injected, and it'll help repair. See, I, we always talk about most of my Medicare patients come to me more for joint issues. And um, pretty much that's really what I have been sending patients for. And I never understood what the results are. But because we are a functional medical practice, one of the things we do is reduce inflammation or the inflammatory state. I mean, just give them better nutrition, uh, go, uh, go through a detox process, get them ready, and then get them to go to the stem cells so that the cells don't get again, the same inflammatory, the autoimmune process or whatever else that may be that they um, lost their joints to. But now you're saying something like a lung. Now, how about for the same issue, lungs are exposed to air. What about gut? Gut is being abused every day, so five, six times. Absolutely. Does it just go and repair? And it's a highly you know, multiplying area of your body. Does it just go and repair all of those? 
Yes. So for instance, and, and one of the big examples that I always give when we talk about gut health, um, for many years, uh, the clinic that I used to run was probably the number one destination for stem cell treatments for autism in, in, in the world. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and we dedicated one of our clinics. So when we started seeing that, we, we actually kind of like specialized and we put together a, an area of, of the clinic to just treat autism. So that one clinic just treats autism and, and, and cerebral palsy. And one of the things that we learned along the way, because we didn't really know a lot about autism when we started, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Um, when we started, we had a, we had the stem cell facility and we were relying on a lot of different specialists to come in and, and, and say, you know what, if the stem cells work this way, maybe I can bring you a couple of patients and we can treat them this way. And one of those doctors was a doctor who treated autistic patients. And that's when we started seeing some, some of these improvements. And then we started learning more. And, and one of the things that we learned is that autism isn't really a neurological condition. It's more of a gut disorder uh, that, that triggers an immune response that manifests neurologically. Because when you have this, this gut disorder and you're triggering all that inflammatory process, uh, it almost behaves like an autoimmune disorder where, where your immune system is so completely out of whack and it's, it's, it's delivering this chronic inflammatory cytokines into your bloodstream constantly. Those little cytokines do cross the blood-brain barrier and, and that's what really triggers the inflammation. We started seeing uh, one of the common findings, I don't recommend this as treatment for autism, is that uh, parents, <laughs> more often than not dads, uh, when when one of their kids with autism would fall down and would hit themselves or you know bang their head or their leg or something, they would give them Tylenol or something like that, right? And what they noticed is that not only did the pain go away, which was their, their main goal, but they also noticed that they were more cooperative and they were, you know, they, they were easier to handle. And it it's because you're... We're decreasing all, the, all those inflammatory cytokines really, really rapidly. Now, obviously, it's not sustainable, and you're not going to give it yeah. your child, yeah, you're not you know, give an Tylenol. Problem. Because in the end, you're not even you're not even addressing the problem. You're just it's it's band-aid medicine, literally, right? So, so that's one of the things that that um, that we started learning, and and one of the things that we observed was that after treatment, our protocol for autism included two IV infusions and one intrathecal. And one of the things that we started seeing is that Patients started, for instance, when they had heavy metal loads, they started clearing their heavy metals much better after stem cell treatment. And one of the theories was that if you're, if you're able to start repairing those, um, you know, the gap junctions in, in the intestines and, and you start repairing all that leaky gut and you're promoting a repair because you're not really repairing it, you're promoting repair. Mm-hmm. So they, these patients are no longer absorbing most of these things. So whatever they're doing to delay them is actually bringing them down. Because you and I, we're, we're eating, for instance, you, go out, you have sushi and you eat tuna, but you don't absorb all of that mercury because you have an impermeable uh, gut lining, hopefully, right? But most of these kids don't. So they eat a can of so- uh, tuna and they absorb all that mercury. So once you start repairing that, they're no longer absorbing it and they're chelating it much better. So so to answer your question, and I went very, very long into that. Oh, that was interesting, uh, actually. Yeah. We, we've seen we've seen a lot of a lot of improvements in, in, in gut disorders, uh, even Crohn's, even uh, colitis. The other thing that I was going to ask about. Yeah. Yeah, we've, we've seen those. And the great thing is that with stem cells, there's a lot of different protocols. You could even go in there at one point we were talking with a gastroenterologist to to develop a protocol to go in there with with like a colonoscopy and spray the stem cells along the walls okay again we'll just absorb and start 
Uh, exactly. Just- exactly. Remember that when you go IV, some of those stem cells are going to end up definitely in the gut, but most of them are going to get stuck in, in That is in, true. Yeah. In, well, maybe in the lungs. Stem cell capsules along with fecal capsules, right? You get the stool, bacteria, and the cells, and then you just cure colitis in one shot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, the colonoscopy approach and even colonics—it's—it's it's a really—it's a really good way of doing it because you're literally spraying the wall. Uh, you go in there, you spray the walls, and um, and it's it's rapidly absorbed. So this is why medicine is not just simply a science; it's an art. You got to think outside the box in order to help people because, and that's why a lot of times when you get more and more regulation, you get less and less care because then you have to start looking at different ways to find bypass the regulations. But I think that's a very, because colitis is a very common problem now. Um, Leaky gut is a common problem because people don't understand every time you eat, you're inflaming your gut lining. But you have, if you have the tendency to heal on your own, you're fine. But if you're like an, uh, have a struggle with autism, then that's not going to happen. And something, a solution like stem cells would be great. So that, Puts me on to the next part, which is traumatic brain injury. I'm assuming even after that, you know, after you go through the rehab, if you're still trying to figure out there's still inflammation, thought process, cognition, um, actually injecting stem cells, would, would you consider doing that um, through the cerebrospinal fluid or IV? Yeah. How does that work? You do both. So we normally always do both. Okay. Uh, you, you do IV and you do intrathecal. Most of the time. So even um, cognitive uh, impairment, like somebody's losing their memory, as you change their diet, you can potentially give them stem cells, correct? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but it is very important what you just said, as you change your diet. Stem cell therapy, and I've always said this in every lecture that I give, stem cell therapy is not something that you do instead of. It is something that you do in conjunction with everything else. Because if not, it's simply not going to work. Stem cells, stem cells are not the solution. Stem cells are a tool, tool. that will help you get there. Exactly. Uh, they, they don't work on their own, uh, despite of what most of these chiropractors are marketing them as, as right now. Uh, yeah. They simply don't work like that. They don't have that power. They, you need to use them in conjunction with, with, with everything else that you're doing as a clinician. That's why it's so important that it is a physician, a clinician who understands both the diagnosis and the biology of stem cells, who puts them together and utilizes them to benefit the patient. Uh, People think that I am against chiropractors uh, practicing medicine. Uh, I I really am not. I am just as against to of of for okay, instance, I'm just doing orthopedic surgery there you go exactly exactly <laughs> or or an ortho surgeon suddenly saying you know what because i i use stem cells so much for knees and, and shoulders i think we're also going to start treating macular degeneration <laughs> because i've read that it, it it can be addressed it's like you know what you're you're not equipped to understand that condition i'm not saying you're not a you're not a good enough doctor i'm just saying yeah. you're not equipped to to treat that one condition and the or same thing goes in your lane <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah I, I think we'll get into trouble for this podcast so <laughs> basically so really to understand when you have a area of inflammation the closest you can get the stem cells to that area see so a I'm going to assume in the lung, if you can put it in an inhaler, that would be even better, right? And if you do, what, what do you think? Uh, yes, uh, not necessarily better. So that's another thing that we that we played around with a little bit. We we did some tests with different kinds of inhalers at, at, at the clinic and different sprays. And what we saw actually worked the best was kind of like an afrin 
kind of like that that you squeeze not not the one with the top but the one that yeah. you squeeze and it's a solution with saline solution you put them in there um and and that works pretty well but the iv i mean if you want to target the lungs there's nothing better than an iv that's right. that's going to be your number one stop because well, nothing stays exactly nothing stays in the right chambers of the heart they, they just get pumped out yeah. right they're, they're lined and, and nothing really stays there people think that oh well the first stop is the heart not really uh, because it, it really just goes into into the the, the the right chambers, and then then that's pushed out, and really the big organ that, that gets it is an, into a, a capillary network is the is the lung. So that's your number one. But for instance, if you want to if you want to help someone with a bad hip or with a bad knee, then you definitely want to inject that area specifically. Yeah. We treated patients with kidney disease, and in those cases, the cardiologist goes in with a catheter right into the renal artery. Mm. And, and delivers it there so that we can get high enough numbers there. Uh, we even treated at one point this young man with schizophrenia uh, on, a similar, on a similar protocol. So the cardiologist, uh, together with, with the psychiatrist that we were working with at the time, goes into the carotid artery and, mm. and deposits the cells there. And, and that actually gets to different areas of the brain. That's also a good approach for certain kinds of uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and even dementia's. Yeah. So uh, having said that, when you do IV, isn't the first stop usually the heart? So can you repair heart soon after a heart attack where you have like muscle repair has to take place as a dead area of the heart? Can you actually inject it? And you, you want you want to go. So the protocols for that is actually with with the catheterization directly into the into the coronary arteries, because remember that once you go into a vein and, and you go IV, you go peripheral. Right. And then the blood vessels start getting larger and larger as they get to the heart. And then they go into the into the right ventricle into the, the right chambers, right? And then they get pushed out. Really, for the cells to go out, they need to be in a, in a capillary. Otherwise, they, they cannot really go out. That's why they they cannot target the heart at that point. Okay. Uh, they will go directly to the to the to the lungs. So the heart basically works as a pump for all of these cells to go to whichever area, but it doesn't necessarily. Usually. Yeah, but it won't, it won't sequester them until yeah. after. So the heart will be the first organ to grab some cells after the lungs grab theirs. Got it. I got it. Okay. So having said all of that, where, where would you say today in this day and age where we are struggling with chronic disease and our list of chronic diseases are increasing, particularly autoimmune conditions and uh, hormonal abnormalities. I mean, the glands are not working. Liver is getting fatty. Gut is leaking. Brain is failing. Where would you say, you know, this is an absolutely, a stem cell is one of the best tools ever in the management of this condition? Well, so for, for most orthopedic conditions, uh, stem cells is, is, the, is a phenomenal first step. So both traumatic and, and uh, degenerative. So when you're talking about osteoarthritis, when you're talking about bad knees, when you're talking about, uh, you know, sports injuries, things like that, stem cells should always be the first, uh, your first try, really, because they will, they will manage inflammation, they will, they will leverage your, your own healing mechanisms, and if they don't fully work, that patient's still 100% candidate for the same surgical procedure that we're going to go under uh, before that. Uh, you cannot say that the other way around. How many times have you heard a patient go in for a hip replacement and, and it never really works and, and they live in pain? And at that point, there's nothing that the stem cells can repair and, and regenerate. Now, what we're seeing currently is that stem cell therapy is still not affordable for everyone right. as, as, a first, as a first step. 
it's still something that, you know, it's, it's going to set you back in the best case, five, $7,000. Uh, and in some other cases you're talking about 20, $30,000, depending on However, let me tell you something today. I had a talk with somebody who came to meet with me who does a lot of uh, cosmetic work. And she says people without blinking an eye will put down or take a loan for 10,000 to get cool sculpting and Botox for their face and fillers for their lips. And these are younger patients. So I would say if it is something very crucial, really when you look at 5,000, 7,000, to get your life back and to actually function and get to that point of health, it really is not the greatest. If you really look, 5,000 I've calculated, it's $13 a day. Look at where you're spending $13 a day each day that is your latte factor. Yeah. There you have for the stem cells, but yes, go ahead. I said one of the reasons it's not done. I, I totally, I totally agree with you. Um, I mean, if, if I was in that position, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't even, I, I wouldn't even think about it. I would just go ahead and, and try the stem cells first. Now, the problem is that on a commercial scale, on a larger scale, a lot of the times doctors don't really feel comfortable, kind of like pushing for the stem cells, Correct. because there are so many other factors into play that we don't we don't know all of them to be honest with you we know most of them and we have a great idea of, of the rest of them but we don't know all the factors that are into play that can affect the outcome of that stem cell treatment so a lot of the times when you're talking about an ortho surgeon they probably feel more confident about what they can go do when they go in there with a scalpel and they're like listen i can go in there and i can fix it and i know it'll it'll be fixed as with with stem cells they're not a thousand percent sure so so even saying that to the patient they're like listen there's a good chance but we really don't know and then the patient says, well, and the surgery is covered by insurance, but the stem cells are yeah. not. You know, you start, you, you fall into that and, and into those questions. Now, hopefully we get to a point where stem cell treatments and regenerative medicine in, in general, not just stem cells, but regenerative medicine in general, PRPs and exosomes and all these different conditions, uh, they can be, they can be addressed and they can be covered by certain insurances. And, and that's, that's where I think is going to be the turning point uh, I, I of it. So. I think so too. I think functional medicine or creation of health should be a separate category of insurance-based coverage because most people want to be healthy. They truly want yeah. to be healthy. But it's just that we are so indoctrinated to use our insurance, but we've been using insurance was always meant to help us during a catastrophic event, something that will put us into bankruptcy. Instead, we're using it for our day-to-day -day and even our, you know, the responsibility of taking care of your health. Like, for instance, uh, somebody who is a sports guy and has an injury, I think a stem cell should be covered because that would be the best tool for a young man or woman who has to grow. By, but by replacing the joint or telling them, hey, you're too young for a new joint, it's years of pain that they have to endure, whereas a stem cell would have actually given them a better quality of life and prolong their time before they need surgery if the, I mean, the degenerative process continues after an injury. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. And, and, and there are a large list of, of athletes who have gotten stem cell treatments mm -hmm. and have allowed them to continue their careers and, and to go back to playing much, much sooner than they would have otherwise if they went into surgery. So don't look any further than, for instance, Kobe. Kobe famously went to Germany and, and got stem cells there, um, you know, just because they yeah. were available and, and, and he valued that. He, he, he knew that if he went under the knife, there was a risk he wouldn't be able to go 
back. And even if, if it was all a success, it would require several months of being out of, out of place. So exactly. I, I do agree the cost of stem cell medicine in general, regenerative medicine in general, even as a public health, uh, from a public health point of view, it, it beats the, band, the, the pants off any kind of surgical or, or, or pharmaceutical approach. But, but there, are still, there is still some work to be done. It's, we're still not there a thousand percent where we say, you know what, this is the new gold standard. We still need to do more, more trials. We still need to, to gather more evidence. What we've gathered so far is, is very positive. We're very optimistic about it, but, but it, it is still early to say, you know what, we should stop doing surgery until somebody gets stem cells. Because no, totally. And I, I, I think there are studies go both ways. You know, some say there are, uh, it impacts the others don't. Then again, you have to see who funded the study. But I think the key thing to understand here, a surgery is a permanent solution to what can be not necessarily a permanent problem, it's something that can be salvaged by stem cells to some degree or give you more quality of time. Um, but once you do the surgery, there's, there's no other option. I mean, if it didn't work, you're basically in trouble. So I think it's a, it's a great, great uh, stop gap before you decide, hey, this is not working and I have to do um, surgery. But also I think the key part, which we have to emphasize you have to change the terrain, and the terrain is the human body in which this disease originated, whether it be autoimmune or degeneration or aging. Why are you aging? Have you changed your nutrition? Do you have your life together? Are you sleeping well? Are your stress management good? And then when you do any intervention like this, the long-lasting effects you get are more fruitful. Then absolutely yeah absolutely you don't i mean you don't you don't do stem cells as as an initial uh approach or as an only approach i said only uh, approach yes yeah we saw this a lot for instance with uh patients usually it was middle-aged men right and and they had been abusing their bodies for for a certain amount of time they're in their you know late 40s early 50s and suddenly mm -hmm. they find themselves with a little bit more cash and a little bit more time and they want to take good care of themselves they start eating a little bit better um and and then they think that you know what i'm just going to go and, and i'm going to get stem cells because that is going to put me right back where i was in, in my 20s but but they don't want to give up drinking or 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 or, or, or you know, staying up late or partying too much or smoking, then that's simply not going to work. And, and you're setting yourself up for failure. And, and part of the problem here as well is that if we as, as practitioners are not being very clear about these expectations, people are, and even up to a certain point, understandably so, expecting a miraculous recovery because they say, you know what, I'm paying $25,000 for this. And I was told that this would allow me to continue my lifestyle um, like I, when I was 20. But in reality, what we needed to do at that point is say, listen, if that's what you're planning on doing, don't even waste your time. Save your $25,000. Right, um, right. But we're not doing that. And, and patients are being burnt and patients are being, uh, you know, misled into believing certain things. And the same is true for for patients with, with important diagnosis, they think they're going to be cured. Uh, you know, they go in there and they think that this is going to cure your multiple sclerosis or it's going to cure your, your, you know, type one diabetes. And, and no, it doesn't. Stem cells just don't cure anything. There's not a single thing that's cured by stem cells. <laughs> so it's just basically a rebels improves the function of something that would potentially could get destroyed 
or something that is functioning, but it's not functioning at its optimal, but we'll repair it to, it's almost like, I would say um, a vase that broke, you want to get it back as a vase, you repair it, it still functions as a vase, you still can, but you just have to be careful with it. It's not something that you can throw around like you did the first time. Right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and you are going to have to repair it. It's not just going to magically repair itself. Repair itself, itself. Okay, so what are the other crazy indications that you see stem cells being advertised for, but you should? really think twice before you undergo that kind of stem cell therapy. Well, so here's the thing, because because of how they work biologically, really stem cells can address and can help enhance the, the, the healing properties of pretty much any tissue in the body. The real problem that I see is when somebody decides to start addressing conditions that they wouldn't be treating otherwise if they didn't have stem cells, like we were saying at the beginning, uh, I'm seeing ortho surgeons suddenly start treating autism simply because they think it, it's just a matter of, of wrestling an autistic child into an IV, um, and they don't really understand what happens with 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 autism. What's the biology? Or what's the pathophysiology of it? How the stem cells work, uh, and all these different things. So really, it's not so much about the indications that are being used, and and there are a few still, and and I will address those. It's more about the practitioner treating something that they're an experts of. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I get I get that question so often, and it's uh, suddenly somebody sees them sees themselves that they go to a weekend seminar, they get trained in in stem cells, and and they see the list, the laundry list of conditions that can be addressed, and they decide to start advertising for all of them, and they start getting patients for all of those, and and they never saw a patient with those conditions before. So that's a big one. And the second one that you really don't even want to think about without checking with the specialist is any kind of cancers. Now, are there treatments for stem cells, uh, for cancers with stem cells? Yes, there are a few. As a matter of fact, back in the 60s, uh, the most typical bone marrow, bone marrow transplant, what's really working there are the stem cells in that bone marrow that, that, that you take out first. And then you wipe out the, the patient's own, own uh, bone marrow and, and you transplant the other one. It's the stem cells that regenerate that. Now, here's the thing. With some other types of cancers, it can work. These stem cells can work like putting gasoline on a fire. So you definitely, definitely, definitely don't want to go to somebody who just says, oh, you know what, I can do stem cell treatments and, and we can treat cancers. Uh, you want to go to an oncologist and the oncologist might say, you know what, biologically, this is not a, the type of cancer that you want to treat with this. So in those cases, it can be very, very dangerous. Uh, the example that we saw with those ladies in, in Florida, and and that's actually a criminal lawsuit under their chief scientific officer. A uh, couple of elderly patients, they had macular degeneration and, and some, I, I cannot even imagine if it was a, a an ophthalmologist that injected both their eyes with fat derived stem cells and now they're blind. So you have to be very careful. It's not about the stem cells as much as it is about the practitioner. You need to go to somebody who would be treating that condition regardless of whether they had access to stem cells or not. The mm. stem cells are just a tool in their toolbox. So basically you have to understand the science of medicine, the pathology, and then the art of healing comes in with the use of stem cells and use it appropriately, fully addressing the disease process, which is what I always say in functional medicine. You can't just go, I mean, people always ask, right? Uh, in a particular condition, do you treat? But really the body heals as a unit. It gets disease as a unit. We see it more in a specific area. 
but you that's why we specialize we get to know a little better about your liver get a little better about your gut a little better about your brain these are all specialists and working with them or in conjunction with them and making sure that's what you're treating really helps the patient get exactly the and, and and the better the better you can get a patient before the treatment and after the yes. treatment the mm-hmm. result that you're going to get really the stem cells it, it, it takes a couple of days even weeks after the stem cell infusion for for to really trigger all of that remember first the stem cells get to a specific injury site then they start replicating then they start recruiting other cells and that whole thing takes time it, it doesn't happen in a matter of seconds so during that time you still need to be nourishing your body. You need to be, yes. like you very well said, you need to be giving it the right nutrients. You need to be sleeping well. You need to be, you know, if, if it is an orthopedic condition, you're not going to go out there and, and continue exercising. You need to give it enough rest for so that it can really replicate and, and you need to follow a specific diet. So that's why stem cell treatment is, is, is a component of a more comprehensive therapeutic approach really and it's not it's not a solution in and of its own that's that's a number one problem that i'm currently seeing in the industry right now is that we are marketing it It, it, it's being commoditized as a solution when in reality it is it is just a tool that a specialist can use it's like if i go out there and i i buy a or I get my, my hands on a Ferrari, I don't automatically become a, a, a race car driver. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, uh, but you know, one of the things I think I'm hoping what they're doing is they're just marketing to get people's attention, but then when they talk to them on one-on-one, they give them the realistic expectation of what the cells, stem cells can actually do for that particular condition. I mean, that's, that's our hope. But I think in general, as people get into it and want to do more of it, or it becomes more affordable, is to understand there is still, to, to this day, there has not been a silver bullet or a magic bullet or anything that you want to call like a quick fix for a decade or a couple of decades worth of destruction. We haven't found that. Not at all. Yeah, so it's going to be like when you have spent so many years in destruction, you have to spend a few months in rebuilding uh, your health. And the stem cell is a tool that will actually help with or enhance the healing process if it can at that point in exactly. time, that particular indication. Correct? Exactly, exactly. But that's all it will do. It'll it'll enhance the healing process. Not like you do stem cells and go out back out to McDonald's. Right. Um, <laughs> you, you do, I mean, I, I always say that you do stem cells and you continue doing everything else that you're doing. And that same patient that I was telling you about, they suddenly decided to turn their life around. They start eating a little bit better. They start exercising a little bit more. They start sleeping better. But they realize that results aren't really getting there because they're, they're dragging along 45 years of abuse to their bodies. Then in that case, stem cell treatments are phenomenal alternative because they will help them wipe out some of that underlying damage and really build up build themselves back up and their health back up but if if on the other hand they just want to come in and get stem cells so that they can continue drinking and 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 not sleeping and partying then that's that's just not going to work and i'm not saying that they should stop partying if, if they decide that that's what they want to do then that's that's perfectly fine but don't waste your money in stem cells Right. And so uh, if there's something called the whole body stem cell treatment, like just inject enough to repair anything and everything. So is the amount of stem cells that they inject important? Um, Like I know there are different 
like when you're doing a joint, there's a certain amount, but what do you do? What is a whole body stem cell treatment? There, there are different protocols and, and it all depends on the source of the stem cells. It all depends on, on the, the, the physical condition of the patient. Uh, it depends on so many different things. Uh, there are obviously too few stem cells are not going to have are not going to have a result, but but too many after a certain point there's there's this theory of a limited limited engraftment sites. So, okay, so once exactly once you get to a certain threshold and and all the stem cells that you've injected go into specific uh, sites that they can engraft onto, any additional stem cells are not going to have any additional results. And we saw this firsthand when we when we switched our, our processes and at first our patients were getting about you know, 100, 120 million, uh, 150 million total uh, nucleated cells from, from the infusions. And, and then we updated our processes, we updated our protocols, we, we developed uh, new ways of harvesting these cells, which were more labor intensive, but were yielding much larger numbers. And these patients were getting now billions of cells. So we went, you know, 10 times as many cells in treatment, and we didn't see 10 times the improvement. So that's actually what, that's actually what made us split our IV treatments into infusion so that they didn't get all the cells on the same day. So they got it on, on subsequent days uh, in order to, to also continue having that effect. So yes, there are certain dosages. Um, right now you're seeing that a lot of the people, especially in the U.S., are, are wanting to sell a very large numbers of cells and they're kind of like making this, this big bro thing like, oh, I got 200 million cells and I got 250 million cells. Um, in reality, after a certain point, it, it makes no sense. And the reason they do that is because the vials usually come 10 or 15 or 30 million cells. So the more cells they get, the more they pay. Mm. And that's why sometimes some of these practitioners uh, that, like you said, should be making sure that these patients are qualified, blah, blah, blah. They really aren't. And they just want to see how many vials they can sell them. So basically, when they take their harvesting these cells, they're allowing them to grow to that degree, um, to that many number of cells, and then re-injecting it. Well, no, that's that's outside of the U.S. That that cannot be done in the U.S. That's that's what, what certain clinics like ours, uh, the one that I used to run in, in Cancun, uh, do in the U.S. Uh, you're you're very limited in terms of uh, of um, manipulation. So you're very limited to when you're doing autologous, you can you can harvest those cells and you have to reinfuse them on the bedside. You process them, you separate certain things, and you put them right back uh, into the patient. Or a lot of them are using now these off-the-shelf uh, stem cell products from birth tissues. So those are the ones that come in a, in a vial and they just thaw them passively in their hand. They put them in an IV or they put them directly into a syringe and they inject them into where they want, want them to be. So where do you see the future of stem cells in the routine treatment of people? Because I think we're going to be a very long-living population. People are going to be living into their 90s and 100s. So really what comes into place, the quality of life. I think the longevity, where, though to some degree we are worried about it, um, it has come down a little and you know the same uh, diseases. We've been fighting heart disease and cancer. We continue to fight. Um, we don't seem to even be making a dent with it because we're not addressing the biggest issue, which is what people uh, self-care. Uh, yeah. Where do you see stem cells in terms of routine care of disease processes? Well, stem cells and, and regenerative medicine as a whole, uh, I certainly hope that we can get to a point where they become part of the mainstream 
medical training. Right now, you're, you're seeing doctors are still not being trained. Young doctors going through medical school are still not being trained in regenerative medicine. Maybe in certain specialties, such as orthopedics, they're, they're starting to get some of it. But, but you don't see any of this um, in, in, in their general training uh, right. curricula. They have to train this on, on their own afterwards. And in reality, we do see, those of us who are on the other side of, of, of the fence, we do see how it has the potential to really make a dent in regenerative medicine and in chronic disease, which is really what's, what's hindering us as, as a species. And, and they can really have a very positive impact in, in public health. Now, healthcare costs are, are through the roof because of these reasons. So I think that it has a tremendous potential. I would love to see it being fulfilled. But the problem is that there are a lot of interests. And I, I don't like to be the conspiracy theorist. But in reality, we, we also have to be, you'd have to be very naive to, to not realize these things. And there are conflicts of interest uh, all over the place. There are conflicts of, in, in, in the food industry, there are conflicts of interest in, in the pharmaceutical industry. Because the most important thing, the most basic thing is self-care mm-hmm. and it's what we eat and and now we're seeing all this big push for more processed foods and for more sugar and for more crap uh, you can have yep. the best therapeutic alternatives out there including stem cells but if we're not taking good care of ourselves uh, then it's a moot point uh, we're just trying to fix something that that shouldn't be broken in the first place so while i'm very excited for the future of regenerative medicine as a whole because i do think it has a great potential uh, i i I don't see it working on its own. We need to address uh, the basis of it all first. And that's why I always emphasize that in order to practice regenerative medicine, really you need to realize that that the first step is preventative medicine and, and you need to understand everything else that goes around our biology and how our body works. And, and, and patients have to be well from that standpoint in order to benefit from regenerative medicine. Yeah, so essentially this, this is regenerative medicine and functional medicine and all of these areas really requires a partnership. The patient has 100% responsibility as the doctor. In traditional medicine, it's 50-50. The doctor just gives you the treatment, it manages your disease. And again, like you said, medical students and the training of medicine is always an has been centered around disease diagnosis management and its prevention, never about health creation. And really, when we're looking at regenerative medicine, as much as it is about prevention, it is also about creating a new pathway towards a better health overall for that decade of life, despite all of the abuse the body has withstood, and creating a better future. And it really requires the patient to understand that's a new gift. Their own cells have been utilized and given um, given a chance to repair. And you want to leave it that way by changing what you feed these cells. So if, if, that, if that makes sense, that's how you regenerate the various systems. Right? Absolutely. And, and, and that's the basis of it. And I think, I think you actually shared that... Um, when we recorded, when you were on my podcast a couple of months ago, and, and I could not agree more that, that health is an active process and that it is the responsibility of the person seeking health. Um, doctors, we should be, we, we need to be coaches. We need to be facilitators yeah. of this, but yeah. we cannot be expected to do the work. And for a long time, patients are, have been expecting doctors to do the work and 
doctors have been trained to think that we need to go in there and fix things. And, yeah. and, and, and this happens a lot. And, and it's part of, for instance, that, that surgical mindset as well, you know what, I need to go in there and fix it. When in reality, the, the body will heal itself if you give it the, the, the right tools it requires. Now, stem cells and regenerative medicine as a whole, that's exactly what it does. They, they leverage these tools and they leverage this healing uh, component. But if you give them to a patient that has no way no energy, uh, you know, on a molecular level, mm-hmm. no, no components, uh, no, no cellular populations to really do that repair, those stem cells are going to be useless. Yeah, yeah. No, so I totally get it. So there is a, the po- there's a point in which, I mean, we are an ideal candidate and then, then the ends of the bell curve where it might be a little too much for you or not enough for you. So yeah. you really need to go to somebody who's really trained in this preferably a physician who understands the science of the medicine behind your disease process and is treating that particular disease process and understands the art of healing and also understands the wholesome approach. Because I tell patients, you can't just go and get stem cell treatment if you haven't changed what got you your degenerative process to begin with. Let's fix all of that, get you ready for stem cells, continue to do this because there's going to be another six to eight weeks process by the time those cells begin to kick in and repair and give you some relief that you've been looking for. Does that's that- a very that that's a, actually a very common conversation that that those of us in this field have with patients uh, who are seeking stem cell treatment for pain management, especially when it is, for instance, uh, back pain and things like that. That that is from a mechanical. Um, disorder or dysfunction, right? So these patients are have this 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 awful uh, lordosis or, or, or you know uh, traumatic injuries or, or massively overweight, and they've developed this 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 pain and the, their spine. And when we tell them that listen, stem cell treatments are going to re- decrease the amount of inflammation and pain temporarily, they go like, well, isn't it supposed to repair? Like, yes, but but if, if you have all this weight on top of your spine still, <laughs> yeah, it's it's really not going to do anything. However, in those cases, it might be useful because those patients with the pain cannot move. So if you take care of the pain for a couple of months, then that can trigger them to start losing that weight. And, and then that's a positive thing. Uh, but if they think that all I'm going to do is just do the, do the stem cells and go again for a big gulp at the gas station, that's not going to work. So uh, let me ask you this, because that's a very common problem with back pain. If they yeah. have screws and hardware, can you still help with stem cells? Like if they've already had surgery. Yeah, you can. You can, but you need to understand again what is causing the pain at that point. Okay. Is is it is it pain because there's there's tension in specific areas? Is it pain because is it a mechanical disorder? Now, will it help with pain? Most of the time, it will because the stem cells will regulate the expression of all these uh, pro and anti-inflammatory cytokines, and will 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 regulate um, you know the inflammation, uh, localized inflammation for for a certain period of time. Now, how long is that going to last? That's a question because, like I said, if it's if it's a purely mechanical thing, it's going to come back. Okay, that's awesome. So actually, we when you really look at it, I, I think the one thing that I really learned is about the lung because I think that's a great option for a lot of people with COPD, and especially if they develop it very early in life, you know, in their early fifties and sixties, this gives them a potential uh, to breathe better. And uh, because we we talk about it mostly in terms of the joints, and then the new one that I've been reading and coming across is the whole body stem cell to really 
regenerate everything else or reduce all the inflammation. But like we discussed, we got to change our lifestyle. So we yeah. optimize it. Uh, so is there any question that I think I should have asked you and you think people should know about stem cell treatment that I haven't asked? Yeah, so one of the most important things, and, and assuming that most of the people who are listening to this are in the United States, uh, something that's very important right now to understand is that not everyone who's offering stem cell treatments is qualified to be offering stem cell treatments. Not every off-the-shelf stem cell product is a safe stem cell product. Mm. Um, so, so it is right now. I'm at a point where I, I'm no longer uh, well. I don't want to say no longer, but I'm currently not clinically practicing because I see that there is a bigger need in the educational side of it, raising awareness of regenerative medicine. And what I'm really focusing on right now is I want more people to get safe stem cell treatments. I even shared this on, on a different uh, online summit a couple of days ago. I don't mind if the total number of stem cells decreases as long as the, there's a percentage of safe stem cell treatments increases. Uh, we're seeing a lot of people that, that because they, they're looking for hope and, and when somebody will give them that hope, regardless of whether it can work or not, um, they're, they're just jumping into it. So uh, definitely avoid all those. Uh, one of the things that I always tell them, definitely avoid all those um, lunch or dinner seminars where they get in there and they, they're targeting the elderly, they're targeting uh, these kind of patients and they're, they're inviting them over for dinner and they, they, they feed them and they give them this pitch, which really that's what it is, a pitch with a paid actor who comes in here and reads PowerPoint slides and books consultations and, and, and gets them to, to sign and to give a deposit for treatment. And, and they never talk to a physician. It needs to be, and I always say this, it needs to be a medical doctor who diagnoses the need for stem cell treatment. Uh, now, can a nurse, a mid-level, a chiropractor, somebody else have a very good idea of when a patient can benefit from stem cells? Of course. Of course, they do musculoskeletal all the time, but it has to be a medical doctor, uh, MD or DO in the case of the US, who, who actually sees this and understands it and, and, and diagnoses it because it has to be diagnosed. And it has to be a, a physician or a doctor who deals with that condition regardless of whether they have stem cells or not. So those are the, the top two things that I always tell people uh, to look out for. Um, and, and, and just for clarity's sake, currently in the U.S., doing treatments like the one you were suggesting or that we spoke about for COPD is, is, is not allowed um, because it is an IV treatment. Most of the treatments, that's why you hear most of them are for orthopedic because they have to be non-systemic. So, so directly into a joint and things like that. Doctors aren't really regulated by the FDA. So, so clinically, if you know, you can just go with, with you can do an IV treatment um, because you know, based on your clinical expertise and all those things, and that's completely fine and legal. Uh, but just to let you know that that's why you don't hear most of these treatments because they really cannot advertise for them. Got it. All right. Very nice. Well, it was really very interesting. And always with all of the podcasts, we learn so much because, um, you know, that's um, a, a completely a different way of looking at stem cell treatments. So I really appreciate your time. And, um, you know, it's been almost an hour and hopefully everybody who has been is going to listen to the podcast later because I'm, I'm doing it in an hour where most people are at work. And I should learn to move it later to the evening. But I think if there are any questions, I will send them your way. Sounds good. And it's a good thing you did it at this hour because it's already 10.30 here in Spain. So <laughs> a little bit, a little bit so later would have been harder. Thank you so much for actually joining us and I really appreciate your time. 
not a problem. Thank you so much for having me. And if you want to do a follow-up, if you get additional questions, I'll be happy to address those. Absolutely, I will. Thank you. Alrighty then. If you've listened to this podcast fully, I would like to hope you have gained some new knowledge, a different way of thinking, and have benefited from it. If so, would you please do me a favor and share this with your family and friends? I do, however, want to mention that nothing that is stated in this podcast or written in the show notes should be construed as medical advice. We would like you as an individual to seek your medical advice from your specific provider. Our goal has all along been to dig into some existing truths, try and make it simple, so we all have a better understanding of our options out there to live fulfilling lives. It may be also prudent for me to mention the obvious here that no doctor-patient relationship was ever formed. In closing, I am grateful that you joined us and please do not forget to leave a review or share this info. Signing off till next time, I'm your host, Dr. Nisha Chalam.